0: Welcome to the Art Grind Podcast. This is a podcast run by artists for artists where we talk about what it means to be one. I'm the producer with our hosts Dina Brodsky and Marshall Jones. This is being recorded between our many jobs and side hustles. We bring you in-depth investigations into the lives of artists we admire and the stories behind the creative journey. So stay on the grind while we fill your mind. Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome to the Art Grind podcast. I'm here with Dina Brodsky and Douglas Casina, an artist, a curator, a gallery owner, and, and jack of all trades. Doug, how are you doing?
1: Fantastic. Thank you guys for having me. Thanks for coming on.
2: And also probably, you, get, you know, because people are just listening, they can't see this, but Doug, you're probably the best-dressed person that we've ever had on this podcast. <laughs>
1: wow that sounds great
2: <laughs> add, add snappy dresser to your lead potential
0: yeah absolutely um so i had a question that i thought would be sort of a nice introductory question that would be on the minds of all of our listeners a lot of our listeners are artists themselves um what what do you look for as a gallery owner to uh represent like what sort of quality are you
1: Oh my God, that, you know, I wish I could explain that. I think there's like, there's a multitude of answers that kind of lead me towards what I'm interested in. I I think number one is something that I'm excited about. Um, As soon as I started kind of playing the game of what would other people like, that really got away from my own kind of critical eye of what I was excited about. So typically it's artwork that I'm really excited about presenting. and then, you know, there's all the other kind of qualifications that you have to go through as a business, right? Like, is this a viable artist for, you know, for sales and for what your goals and, you know, the level of the gallery? Is it somebody I'd be taking to art fairs uh, internationally? You know, when you even are kind of doing the, um, you know, the quantifying what that looks like, you know, art fairs cost a ton. And, you know, Wall, you can basically say cost you $10,000 to have a wall there. So is that artwork that you're putting on the wall going to return that to you? So there is some like really, you know, uh, horrible business kind of decisions that need to be made with that, but it's all in relationship to um, kind of how you project seeing that artist. Um, for me because I'm an artist, because of my own background, I really look at it as like a kind of an artist development process with some of my artists as well. Um, so I look at them as business partners. And, you know, is this artist going to be a good business partner?
0: So so would you say like the artist, um, maybe personality traits or virtues or something like that come into the equation for you?
1: Um, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> um but uh yeah you know it was funny one of my old business partners was like I really wish we had like some psychological exam test that we could like give all potential artists to take before we take them on Uh, (laughs) but uh you know maybe they need to do the Enneagram or something you know uh
0: could you is there a way I know this is a tough question because in a way we we already went over it a little bit but What excites you? Is there a way you could put like a a point on that at all? Is it color? Is it movement? Is it, you know, is there any sort of um, uniqueness is what, what, what is that quality?
1: Yeah. You know, uh, just to give you an example of, uh, you know, maybe the last couple of exhibitions that we did here at the gallery, the last exhibition that we just closed was an artist. His name was King Gun Min. Uh, Ken is originally from Seoul, South Korea, and moved out to the United States to work for um, for George Lucas. And um, he his work is layered with duality. Um, so he has this very traditional painting background uh, that he studied Western painting in Korea. But then his work references kind of pop art. It references kind of cartoon and, and uh, kind of digital art. He also uh, adds a lot of fur and beads and crystals stuff to his work too, where it becomes this amalgamation of very traditional Korean pigment scroll-looking paintings that have like melting... Uh, you know, Bambi's on them and has like, you know, it's this kind of west versus east, high art versus pop art, and, you know, just the aesthetics of it are incredibly engaging.
2: Uh, I spent a lot of time over the last few weeks looking at the artists in your gallery. Um, It feels like what you're looking for, or the one unifying factor they have in common, is that they're all people who create, kind of create their own world like Sukitra Matai, like that's, that's her universe. Like she weaves it, paints it, collages it, um, and creates something that is, you know, like it's a universe that exists in this one, but it's also something that she's made that is unique to her. And uh, Ken Gunman does the same thing. I mean, it's a totally different looking universe, um, but he al- it almost doesn't, it feels like it doesn't matter what materials they're using. They're just building the, building the world.
1: I agree. And well, Suchitra first of all, is absolutely fearless with her approach to material. It's between, she does painting, she does video installation, she does mixed media, she does fiber-based work. You know, uh, there's huge installation pieces. We just uh, uh, placed a work with Crystal Bridges Museum that was 15 feet by 50 feet Um that uh, was all fiber-based woven vintage saris. Um, so I, I you're totally right. There is a kind of this immersive installation element that I really enjoy with artwork um, because I think it has the ability to kind of take you out of whatever situation you're in at that moment and concentrate on that art. There's something about that spectacle that I really enjoy in work. Um, but for me, I think, Also, most of my artists, uh, Ken Gunman, his last show was called GBTYC, which was an acronym for Go Back to Your Country, um, based on all the anti-Asian sentiment that has been happening because of the Asian flu, right? There were air quotes there, by the way, since you guys couldn't do those. And, uh, you know, or also Goodbye to Your Compulsions. And Sue works with, you know, she, uh, her family originally, um, she was born in British Guyana, but uh, she uh, originally, her family was from Northern India and was taken as indentured servants to work the sugar plantations after slavery was abolished. So a lot of her work talks about kind of post-colonialism. It talks about, um, you know, some really heavy issues about this idea of the other and of race. And so one thing that I find really engaging with art for me personally and what resonates with me is work that has these amazing aesthetics that really seduces you into having these larger conversations. You know, it doesn't just hit you over the head right at the beginning, but it slowly kind of allows you to explore those themes because it's so beautifully done that you can kind of weave yourself into that.
2: You were an artist before you became, you know, be, before all of your other hats, unless I'm incorrect. Uh, what what came first?
1: Um, you know, the, the, a lot of it kind of came in tandem. So yes, I I was actually first published as an artist at age 11. Um, as, <laughs> yeah, in a national best-selling book of all things. It was art. It was called a book called "Day in the Life of America." It was a photography book, and I some national thing to get into that, and. Um, but really after college, um, I was just starting to exhibit, uh, my work in a in a broader sense. And I kind of fell backwards into the art gallery business. So I, um, I owned my first art gallery at age 23 and wow. uh, it was more kind of a members based gallery, you know, just a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit of an offshoot of like, uh, you know, uh, a a co-op style gallery, and um, a lot of kind of DIY movement artists that were part of that, and a lot of kind of underground art um, at the time, and uh, I was also, you know, at that time in my life, I was like, great, I have this space that I can exhibit my art in, and this is a place for that, and little did I know it was turning into like kind of a babysitting job of 30 artists, you know, it was, It became its own thing. And that's what I, you know, and over the years, they've kind of worked in tandem. I also own an art studio here in Denver where I have 16 artists that rent space from me as well as uh, I used to live on the top floor of that space. And so it's become this kind of immersive practice where I think they all kind of feed each other.
2: So what did you, you know, when you were an 11-year-old, did you think you wanted to be an artist or...?
1: eleven year old Doug loved to draw and do those things absolutely, but um my whole family was in the sciences um so i um, you know as much as I enjoyed it, I don't think I was ever like given that idea that you could make a living as an artist or that you could have that as a career. That wasn't something that was on my radar and so even when i went into <clears throat> when I went into the university. Initially, I was going to school for a molecular, cellular, developmental biology degree, and I had a fine arts minor. And I was a semester away from graduation when I had this kind of aha moment and ended up switching to doing two degrees in the fine arts.
2: Um, what happened to molecular biology? Did you just drop it?
1: It's still there. I mean, it still exists. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It <laughs> didn't die when you left it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's really <laughs> in really fabulous ways. I wish it the best.
2: <laughs> yeah, once, once Doug stopped doing it, the whole the whole field just kind of like perished in obscurity. I mean, did you ever finish that degree or you, you just decided to give art everything you had?
1: Um, yeah, I, I switched over to art. Um, at the time, too, I had been doing, uh, I was receiving grants for undergraduate research And uh, projects I was working on were going to the International Space Station, Mir at the time. And I was, I had been trained in handling radioactive materials and I worked in a lab and all kinds of fun stuff. Um, You know, for me, it was really, you know, it, it comes back to, I, as a child, had some surgeries that really changed my life. I had kidney surgery when I was in fourth grade. And I was kind of told at that point Um, You know, it was a congenital defect. And I was told that I wouldn't live to be past 17. And it was like this great. um, uh, It was a it was a very um, coincidental thing that they caught this. And uh, so, uh, you know, with my family just being in sciences, it was a natural thing where I thought, okay, great, I almost owe something. And uh, so that's why I was going into genetics and molecular biology was I was going to pre-med. I thought that uh, being a doctor was that route for me. Um, and I had this kind of realization that um, sure I can make a bunch of assholes live longer. Um, but I think I would rather make them like um, art had a transformative effect in my life and art, I think really, has a way of changing the way people think. It might be a subtlety at first, but it can change the way you show up in the world. And I thought for me, that was a more important contribution than changing the way people felt physically.
0: What what art has done that for you? Like in, in museums or what, what have you encountered that really sort of changed the way you thought about things?
1: Oh my God, there's a... I, I mean, there's so many examples of it. Uh, You know, there's a spiritual relationship that I've developed with art. And, uh, you know, one thing, just even being in this building, so uh, to kind of describe where I'm at right now, I'm on the second floor of this building where my galleries are. So um, it's a three-story building. One floor is completely devoted towards storage. So we have about 3,500 square feet of art storage. And then the first exhibition floor um, has exhibition space and offices. And then the second floor has a a major exhibition space. And then I have my apartment up there. And uh, so, you know, I kind of look at this place as, you know, uh, almost like a church for me. And the artwork on the walls are prayers. And then I'm the little monk that lives in the back, you know? And so, and I think that's grown out of, that those many experiences that I've had with artwork where they've changed kind of the way I view the world around me. Um, more recently, one of the most transformative experiences that I've had that just kind of is coming to mind is last summer um, I was able to host a performance artist. Uh, his name was Carlos Martiel, and Carlos is a Cuban born black performance artist who's done like the Venice Biennale. And all of his work is about race and identity and body. And, uh, and it's incredibly, incredibly powerful work. Um, so the exhibition um, that I put on with him in association with the Biennial of the Americas was curated by a good friend of mine, Marisa Cachiello. And uh, the performance itself, There was some confusion leading up to it. It was one of those things where, you know, uh, um, you know, kind of different institutions had some um, confusion (laughs) putting things together. And uh, that's where I ended up stepping in and providing a venue and also some of the resources to, uh, to make this performance happen. And so what Carlos did is he came in and... I I had to find like this piercer first of all that's a whole different part of the story but what his performance was was he took um basically it was an arrow um that was just the top half of the shaft of the arrow that had an American flag on it and it was that 24 karat gold tip on the arrow and it was pierced through his shoulder and we did right before the performance and then he laid nude and reposed in the gallery for an hour as we allowed people to come in and uh um you know experience it so you know basically he was trying to say as a black man from south america it feels like you just come and you plant your flag in us wow wow and Well, and it was a very spiritual thing because I I was in the back room with Jess Carlos and this piercer. I I found this piercer the day that Carlos arrived in town because nobody would do it you know even the director of the biannual like because people were worried about permits and safety and all of this kind of stuff i was i like i spent a week calling like every piercer and tattoo place like in the region trying to get somebody to you know do this and of course they're like what you're going to put a fucking arrow through somebody's arm like it in an art gallery i you know this can't be legal i'll lose my license you know whatever right and so finally i'm sorry Dina?
2: Um, I want to know, um, so the guys have finally agreed, Uh, what was he like?
1: His name was Wolf.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Of course.
1: And Wolf was fabulous, right? Like, so Wolf finally agreed to this and I picked him up, you know, it, it felt very kind of sketchy to be honest, but I picked him up, you know, like on the other side of town and drove him to the hotel to meet Carlos like a day before the performance was going to happen. And Wolf was, you know, he's tatted head to toe, has tons of piercings. And he ended up being like the gentlest, most professional person ever. Right. So I'm in this back room. I rented out this space that was more of a performance, uh, you know, more of a, um, uh, you know, like a, a rental venue. Um, it was uh, because we needed to hold a lot of people for this performance. And I'm in this back room, kind of the green room of this space with just Carlos and Wolf. And Carlos is laid out on this like massage table and just has, you know, he just has this white kind of cloth over his midriff and it's kind of flowing onto the back. And I, I just sat there taking photos because it very looked much looked like the Piajate, right. It was just this, beautiful thing. And, and Carlos is this, you know, uh, just muscular like specimen of a man. Right. And then I'm in the back and Wolf is just gently talking to him and like cleaning him, you know, getting him prepared for this, for this piercing. And it started to feel almost like the preparation of a corpse. You know, it had that kind of feeling coming together. And then, you know, then it became this idea of the piercing, which started to feel like ritualistic in some other way. So I'm experiencing this whole uh, process of Carlos getting this piercing. And then once he had it, we took him out into the gallery space and everybody was outside on the street. We had projections in kind of this uh, front area that people could watch of previous performances before we actually let them into the, the exhibition space. And we sat there positioning Carlos and getting everything ready and getting the cameras and everything set up. And then we let people start filtering in. And as they started experiencing the work, you could tell they didn't know what to think. And it took a while for people to start kind of getting closer and kind of settling into it. And, and people were weeping I mean, you can tell this. I mean, he just had this enormous piercing through his shoulder and he's sitting there, you know, in immense pain, kind of going through this meditation process of himself to kind of say like, look, this is what this feels like to me. And for me, I had to keep looking through like my cell phone and taking photos or go check with the photographer or the videographer because if I sat with it for more than just a couple of minutes, I was overwhelmed. And then after After that performance, we went into the back and Marisa the 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 curator um, she didn't want to be there for the piercing part, but for the taking out of the removal of the piercing um, she and I were both laying hands on Carlos in the back while he had massive piercing removed from his shoulder and uh, and that again had this very kind of spiritual connotation to it and Then we, a group of us from the biannual and from you know some uh, people, uh, some patrons, were going to all go out to dinner with Carlos right afterwards, and to this restaurant a few blocks away. And um, we started walking down the street, and he kind of ducked down the alley and um, and started weeping. And you know, uh, Marisa and I just kind of held him there while he wept a little bit, and it was, you know, you could tell that he had been overwhelmed by this experience, and. And for me, you know, having had some background with performance art, just to have watched this whole way of the preparation to kind of how the performance, um, you know, uh, affected the performer uh, was really transformative. And it just reinforced this idea that um, what kind of a major effect art can have on all of us, um, from the maker to the observer.
2: So um, I actually really want to know about how you went from being, you know, Doug majoring in molecular biology to Doug picking up the tattooed piercer named Wolf to put, you know, put an arrow through, you know, through through a man's arm. What were kind of the steps that took you there? So 24, you have a collaborative gallery space and you're painting. Um, and then what happens?
1: Oh my God, Do you want 20 years of my life kind of like... Right.
2: But we only have an hour, so no problem. I I
1: know, I know. Let me let me think about what the highlights were there. Um, So you know, I you know uh, that gallery ended shortly after uh, nine eleven. You know, that was uh, you know I think we were only open for about a year, maybe even less after that. Um, Then I um, continued my art making practice as I I think I maybe worked for another gallery or two in between there. And then I opened and closed another gallery that failed really quickly, um, for, it was more of a, like a landlord situation than it was anything else. Um, uh, I have had a really weird background with stuff. So I, at one point, was an art director for an apparel manufacturer. I designed rugs that were handmade in Tibet and Nepal. I've done some uh, design work. I've designed, I don't know, a couple billion logos and magazine ads and that kind of stuff. I've even ended up designing uh, two patches for NASA for space flights to the ISS through SpaceX. I've had kind of all these weird other tangential art projects that have circled around me the whole time. And then uh, about, you know, one of the pivotal parts was when I got sober. So I've been now sober for 10 years. And I would say about a year after I got sober, I came on as the director of a, a more traditional representational gallery. It was called Evergreen Fine Art. And uh, it might have even been uh, slightly towards the western slanting of the representational world, um, but we worked with some really well-known artists. I also represented the state of Thomas art Benton there. And uh, during that process, I was exhibiting my work um, uh, as I always kind of had been throughout, and uh, I had noticed um, a really interesting divide in. Kind of the arts community between the representational traditional um, kind of side of the art uh, scene and then the more conceptual and contemporary side. And that prompted me to do an exhibition that ended up uh, being filmed for a PBS special. And uh, that exhibition was kind of a, a pivotal point in my artistic career and it kind of coincided with this other gallery going out of business after 25 years. The owners were at that point where they were ready to retire. One of them was 82. And uh, they were ready to get out of the business. And shortly after that is when I uh, opened up K Contemporary, which is now just over three years old. And uh, here we are.
2: So by the way, so was there anything that prompted you to get sober? I mean, is is that something you're willing to talk about?
1: Oh, absolutely. I really just needed to, (laughs) you know, it was something where it was like my physical health was, I ended up in the hospital twice. I, I didn't have like an intervention or anything. It was, uh, I was, you know, I had given myself a month where I was like, okay, I need to, you know, sober up or else I'm going to die. Um, and I had given myself a month to kind of do that on my own. And I maybe went to one like AA meeting and like tried to do this outpatient kind of, uh, program. And everybody that was in that program was like court ordered and were like, you know, like 18 year old tweakers that did not want to be there. And whereas I am like this 35 year old man who's like, I need to get sober. I need help. And I kind of gave myself a month to, figure that out. And I, you know, kind of promised myself if I couldn't in a month that I would go to rehab. So I, I, after a month of uh, failing at that on my own, I called up my folks and said, can I borrow a lot of money and I need to go to a rehab program. And,
2: and you've been sober ever since.
1: No. And you know, that is an interesting part of that too, is, you know, I, I brought whatever art supplies I could bring with me to rehab and that was one thing that I was really worried about, you know, kind of circling this back to the art world, is I was worried about if I was going to be any good of an artist sober. You know, I, that was a real fear for me.
2: Um, was, was drinking some things that kind of went together with your creative process in your 20s? Or?
1: I think so. Um, you know, I think there was an element of that. Like it, it was really funny. I was talking with a friend of mine who just opened up. A, he he's back in London and uh, um, is working on opening up another gallery there. And and uh, I, he used to own a gallery in uh, or maybe still does in Salida, Colorado. And he had opened up this kind of bar on the side of it as kind of and I think it was called the Muse. And you know, it was this place where he wanted to foster these kind of artistic conversations over at a wine bar type of thing. And he was exploring that idea in London again and thinking about that. And he was asking my opinion on it. And I'm like, you know, when in my 20s, there was like right next door to my gallery, you know, this gallery I had uh, here. In, and, uh, and we had a rock bar on one side and a real hipster bar on the other side. And I just remember like having this conversation with this Dutch artist till like two in the morning where we just got ripped and we're talking about like the importance of a circle. You know, like I think we spent like four hours talking about, you know, like what is the circle in a painting, you know, and, and I was like, you know, I did that in my 20s, you know, like I, I don't need to revisit that fucking conversation.
0: Well, there is that, that sort of myth or legend that to be truly artistic you need to be damaged in some way. And I feel like that's such a kind of corrosive myth. You know, everybody wants to be Keith Richards or whatever to make art, and it just feels a little bit like a stretch, you know, almost like you got to get your bona fides by going through the fire to, to make art.
2: You know, Marshall, like, so so me and Marshall were academically trained kind of in this very, very classical way. Um, how many people do you know who are really trying to be Keith Richards? Like, uh, you know, all, like all the people we know are like, oh, I can't have this one drink in a bar. I have to be up at six in the morning to, <laughs> you know, work on my underpainting. I, I think that made a more, you know, like more experimental, more exciting kind of art than we did and therefore had t- you know, like, like had the capacity to self-destruct
1: them. Um, you, you know, I, I, I do agree. I think there's a lot of these kind of myths and misconceptions that we have about this romanticized version of the tortured artist or the starving artist. Um, you know, and that's, I think, something that we've all kind of bought into in some way. And so we all kind of have some belief structure around that. But, uh, you know most of the artists that I know that are making it work their fucking asses off they're in the studio um eight hours a day working 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 eight to twelve to fourteen hours like it's just it's just how they show up
2: so you described your first your first gallery as ending up babysitting about thirty artists
1: that, that was wrong I shouldn't have said that, but that's what that's that's what it felt like at the time i
2: but, um, no, no, no. I mean, curating a show or organizing anything really with creative people is kind of like herding cats. But um, how do you feel about it now? I mean, you're, you're obviously still doing it, so you must love it.
1: I do, you know, And, and but really the way that I look at this is it almost becomes a, another way of my creative expression. So, you know, curating exhibitions, trying to figure out ways of getting that work in, in front of people, and this year has been a really kind of, you know, I don't want to say challenging because it's it's been freeing in some ways to like change kind of the dialogue of what the gallery is when people can't come into a gallery. And so this summer I've been able to kind of present, um, I don't know, I thought they were a lot of fun and the exciting uh, ways of um, engaging with people. Um, that felt very satisfying to me as an artist as well. Um, sometimes I feel like curating and putting together these shows are like me doing my art, just I'm using other people's art. And that kind of almost comes out of, I think that show that I did for the PBS special, it's kind of the same idea of, um, you know, kind of recontextualizing something. So. Um, certainly are there moments that are challenging just because everybody has unique personalities? Yeah, but I, I'm so lucky in this where, um, because of all the different facets in which I get to play with art, that it doesn't feel like a job or a career. It's, it's a lifestyle choice that I just wake up and start doing, um. Uh, so it's uh, it's a little different
0: so when you're when you're curating a show putting together something that you know in my opinion I've done a little bit of that and there is so much artistry that goes into it like what flows together and stuff and in the back of your mind you're kind of knowing artists who want to be in shows and things and there's there's something you know sad about rejection on all sides of it. Are, are you? Are there any pieces that you love that just don't quite fit the show and don't make it in? Do you have those sorts of decisions?
1: You know, I primarily do solo exhibitions at the gallery. Um, so, I've, because I love seeing the work within the context of you know a larger body of work from the artist, um, but certainly like uh, the the better examples of that with curation would be what I take to art fairs. Um, you know, so an art fair is its own, you know, thing. They might like this year, we uh, participated in, uh, an untitled for art Basel. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, yeah like i there's only so many artists you can take and you have to make curatorial decisions on the work and what you're bringing and and certainly i want to give that platform and that voice to as many artists as i can and that's that's a tough challenge for sure
2: uh, it was untitled online or in real life
1: it, it was online this year it was virtual and and honestly i was really uh pleasantly surprised with how much energy it felt like i had I had done another virtual art fair earlier this year, um, which was just ridiculously stupid. <laughs> and, um, this, sorry, whatever art fair that was. Um, <laughs> uh, this one.
2: Like, <laughs> <laughs> the art fair that will not be named. <laughs>
1: but uh, so I wasn't expecting a lot, to be honest. But about ten days before the fair started, the, the fair had put out a you know a, a general email talking about that they were doing a, a you know a, a concentration on contemporary Caribbean art, and I called up uh, the uh, the fair and I, I talked with. Uh, uh, the powers that be there. And I asked them, you know, this artist that I'm taking and that we're featuring and that I was hoping would in the, the real world fair version, we had applied to do, you know, one of those big installations kind of at the entrance to the fair with, um, her name is suchitra Chitra and she's originally from the Caribbean. And how do we get a part of this programming And they kind of said, well, we're doing these webinars. They're kind of like little symposiums. And they're like, what would you have in mind? And off the cuff, I kind of pitched that. Why don't we do a curatorial conversation and maybe a studio visit with her? And I uh, spoke about a couple curators that I thought would be good for that. And, you know, uh, we ended up uh, with uh, Becky Hart, who is an amazing curator for the Denver Art Museum. Uh, she ended up doing a curatorial conversation that I moderated with Sue Chitra uh, in her studio as part of the official programming for Untitled. Um, we had one of our uh, major collectors uh, watching that and pulled the trigger on a piece that was behind Sue Chitra in her studio uh, when he was in London observing the the programming. And uh, of that fair, like Artsy had come out with a list of uh, the top 100 works from all the fairs in Miami that were participating that year. And, you know, this included artists like Kehinde Wiley. And we had four of the five artists I took to Untitled were included in that list. So that became like, uh, you know, that's awesome. energizing. And then we had like a curator from the bass, you know, uh, single out uh, uh, Sue for, you know, her kind of curatorial selections from the fairs. And, you know, so it became uh, there was a lot of energy. We had a a fair amount of sales and it just, it was exciting.
0: In terms of um, interest and even um, if you, if this is like too personal question, we can edit it out, but like in terms of interest and economics and stuff, has that been affected by the pandemic these times?
1: Um, you know, we I've heard this from a lot of people in the art world. I think at, it depends, I think, on what level you're participating. Um we've had a better year than we've had in previous
0: years. Really? It's great. That's great. Yeah. That's great. I've,
1: heard, I've heard that from a couple other places. Um for me personally though, I and I, I might be the exception. You know I know of other galleries that have closed down and I think it's also because of the type of programming that we do I know that you know I, I have a lot of friends in Santa Fe and I know several gallery owners in Santa Fe that have been struggling um, but I think that's primarily because they're more reliant on the tourist base than they are on the other type of programming that I do so I think and I know In LA, they've been struggling with because of openings um, and, I mean, I should say closures of uh, the gallery spaces and the ability to get people in the door. But, you know, for me, there's been some really good lessons that have come from this, and I'm really excited to kind of keep moving some of those forward.
2: I feel like a lot of places are going to close. Like I feel like, I mean, the world is going to be a different place, but I think specifically the art world might be a very different place when we come out of this and not necessarily in a bad way. Like I I wasn't that attached to the way the art world was functioning a year ago. Right. So, um, so I'm not sure that that's the change is a bad thing, but what do you think? Like, I feel like it's going to be ages before we can have a really, really crowded opening where people are sharing wine. Um, On the other hand, like what you were mentioning, um, Sakitra, I'm mispronouncing her name, like her being able to do an artist talk and a studio visit in front of thousands of people, right? That wouldn't have actually happened in real life. And that wouldn't have been, I mean, it was technologically a possibility pre-COVID, but I feel like there's some things that this version of the world can give us that actually the previous one couldn't and that that might be a closer connection to the artist, despite the fact that you can't show up in the same place. Uh, um, like like what you know what like what were you thinking in March when everything was closing down?
1: Um, March was pretty tough. I was supposed to do a takeover of a gallery in Santa Fe at the time. Um, so and I had, I had just gotten back from New York. So. Um, I was out there for armory week and I also was representing a piece at a Sotheby's auction for one of my clients. Um, and another one of my artists was having a solo ex- or no, it was a two person exhibition that was opening in New York. And another artist of mine was participating in, in spring break. Um, so I left New York, came back And, you know, my personal life was going through a really kind of crazy situation at that point, too. And I noticed this whole kind of collapse happening. I was also supposed to, right at that point, I was expecting a shipment from Bratislava in Slovakia from one of my artists, his name is uh, Victor Fresso, um, who was also supposed to be opening up a major museum exhibition in Europe at that same time point and as soon as the travel ban kicked in nobody would take the shipping so all of a sudden our shipping for our april show was no longer coming in and it that started this whole string of events where we were just starting to figure out okay great I, you know we might not even be able to open let alone what you know the artwork won't be here <clears throat> and then of course we went into lockdown and during lockdown is where i really had a little minor epiphany about like ways to, um, I started like a little bit earlier, I was really starting to study stoicism and I came across this book that's called the obstacle is the way. And I was really kind of looking at that of, okay, so here are the obstacles that we're facing. What is this new pivot that we do to adjust to? And one of the things that kind of came up for me is during lockdown, I, um, I was kind of brainstorming with this art writer and I came up with this idea of, I wanted to do like a booth, like an art fair booth on a truck or like a wall on a truck and drive it around with the artwork. And it, the, you know, then I was like, okay, I can't afford to plexiglass in a truck. And like, how are we going to do this? And then it ended up being, I came up with this idea. I was like, Oh, those billboard trucks that like strip clubs use. Right, and I was like, uh, you know, strip clubs are closed. They probably aren't being used right now, right? And so I, uh, so I called up, <laughs> I called up one of these uh, places, and I, I ended up renting a billboard truck, and I, I printed out artwork that was nine feet by eighteen feet, um, by two of my artists, uh, Sean Huckins and Daisy Patton, and I uh, had this truck. And it didn't. It wasn't advertising a show or even the gallery, it was just the artwork. And I had this truck drive around all the neighborhoods uh, in Denver and Boulder as kind of a, you know, kind of a, I, you know, a, I don't want to say like a gift to the city, but I wanted people to feel like um, there's still some beauty that exists out there. And the other part of it more so was I wanted to make a really big statement to my artists that I'm gonna do whatever I can to support you, and that I'll get your work in front of people and we'll do this. And that, was, and that ended up being the first of like several kind of pop-up uh, really fun engagements that I ended up doing all summer.
0: It, it leads me to a question because, you know, the people that I'm around consistently are all artists, either students, professionals, teachers, it just seems to be my whole world. And I feel a little uh, woefully out of touch with with how, how people think about art that they're seeing. You know, just um, anyone who, who's not necessarily in the arts themselves. And you have a storefront and people just kind of come by or driving the truck through a neighborhood, you know, meeting all the people along the way. What, what reactions do you get from art it seems like you deal in art that's somewhat numinous and transcendent and powerful and all this stuff do is that does that translate well to the to uh sort of the everyday people that you meet
1: you know that's a really great question and that's a that's a really hard one to answer because <clears throat> first of all you know part of what I've really been like part of my mission is to try to make art like cool again in some way, because I think, like, I remember reading this thing when I was in college where they said something like 15% of people in the United States will ever enter a private exhibition space, like a gallery, like a commercial gallery, and maybe 20 some percent of people will go to a museum in their life of the, you know, this is like standard population in the United States, right? So if only 15% of the population show up in a private art gallery in their entire life, You know, these are either people that have already bought into it, right? Already open to this experience of what art is, or, you know, or there's some kind of gateway to that. You know, as a gallery, um, I think there's an intimidation factor that people have, um, because there's a whole vernacular that we speak about artwork. And, you know, nobody wants to come into a space and feel stupid because uh, they're trying to fall in love with something. And, you know, and there's a, there's a culture of over-intellectualizing that conversation, I think, some too, um, to almost, I don't know if, it, if that's what creates the barrier or if that's just part of what people engage with about the art. But uh, so with some of these projects that I've been doing that are more public, um, you know, another one was I brought Carlos Martiel back during um, the, the protests. And we ended up renting, I found a a digital capture studio and we recorded his whole performance. This was one called Third Person. And what it was, was Carlos was in the center of three white observers who were watching him on their cell phones for this performance. And I was able to, and this happened all so quickly, but we were able to project the performance from people's, our cell phones that were being used from the the three white observers and from inside the capture studio onto like about eight buildings throughout the city, including this historic clock tower and uh, the history Colorado museum. I had a guerrilla group uh, that ended up doing digitally mapping and projecting the full nude performance on the front of the city and County building here. Um, And so I think in those ways, Perhaps people are, you know, it's almost like we're meeting people where they're at because the other way, they're already coming into the gallery. So they already have some kind of idea of what art is to them before they walk in the door. Um, Right. So my whole challenge that I keep thinking of is how do we make art more accessible? How do we continue to create more dialogue around it? How How do we interest people in in having that conversation around art
2: um before you know while marshall was dealing with with his couch that couldn't make it up the stairs uh me and, me and doug had a chance to talk a little bit and we we're talking about the kind of the gift that really 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 smart people have of making whoever they're talking to instead of feeling like The smart person is the smartest person in the room. They make you feel like you're the smartest person in the room. And, you know, just by paying attention to you and kind of creating, it's almost like a conversational magic. And it feels like that's what you're trying to do with art. Like you're not supposed to feel stupid when looking at art. Like you're not supposed to make, you're not supposed to feel like the art is smarter than you. If anything, the art is supposed to make you feel smarter, make make you feel like there's more magic in the world. Absolutely,
1: and and I love that you used magic because whenever I speak about art, um, the only term that I can ever come up with is magic because if you think about it, whoever's creating this work, right, they're listening to a prayer or their connection with spirit or God or however you want to name whatever it is that is esoterically guiding them, and then they create an object, And this object is imbued with whatever that is. And the only reason why this object exists is to have a conversation with whoever stands in front of it. That's the only reason why it exists, is to have this conversation. And that person who's standing in front of that object, if it resonates in the right way, can leave changed. And for me, that's like the pure definition of magic, right? An object that's imbued with the power to change the person who stands in front of it, like that's pure fucking magic to me. And so how do we invite people to have those conversations? How do we, how do we propose it and create spaces for them to be able to analyze? Because really what artwork is inviting us to do is to ask these questions of ourselves so we can say okay why am i reacting this way to this artwork what is it bringing out in me so it becomes a, a practice of self awareness or it might then you know create cultural change it might create societal change and and i think right now it's incredibly pivotal that we're having these conversations because i think a moment like corona um, historically, if we look at the Black Plague or World Wars, there's a rebound effect of cultural awareness on end side of it. And I think we're kind of on that verge of a renaissance right now.
0: I do. I think it's so powerful. Like, I mean, it, we, I had a, an online class kind of around the holidays and we just sort of talked to each other and it was all these people from all over the world in this class, all kind of like doing their best to create images that reflect how they feel and share that with people. And I can't hardly think of anything more beautiful. And my, I, I always get a little heart sick when I hear about people feeling alienated or pretentious artists sort of like aren't speaking them out of their enjoyment of things and stuff. And I, I I agree with you. You said this stuff, like it can have a changing effect. And I feel more so than politics or, you know, even to some, some point religion and stuff, there is something in this and the tries that we all do and looking at them collectively that is so powerful. And I just hate it when people feel like they're not invited in or or don't belong in the club.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So the question is, then, how do we make art more inclusive? How do we create an environment when people are, there's so much distraction? How do we remind people that there's this other part to it? You know, how do we create that environment for them?
2: Um, maybe maybe, um, maybe create a gallery that's the opposite of most, ch- most galleries in Chelsea. Like, I, you know what I'm talking about, like the very, very stark white walls and the very, very clean, you know, kind of gray floors. It's the same in all of them and kind of a gallery girls that like doesn't make eye contact um, and totally incomprehensible art in the walls.
1: Well, and I think that, uh, you know, there's like I, I see the purpose and the point of that type of a gallery right? Because I think sometimes too, it's this idea of how do we slow people down enough to actually pay attention for a second? And if we create a space where it feels like something is of importance, maybe then we'll create that importance to like, look at something in a way, like if you present something like gold, people will treat it like gold, but I totally get the impersonal kind of pretentious side of
0: that.
2: Too. You know, it's, I used to go to Chelsea um, when, it, when I was in grad school and I'd listen to the conversations that people had there and I'd almost like try to write down the most pretentious things that I heard people say. And I was like, God, this is just, you know, it's intolerable, right? But then at some point, I, I you, know, if you, you know, I went when I was a few years older and I realized that people aren't being overly intellectual and intolerable and pretentious. They're actually looking for something to connect with. And at that particular point of like Chelsea art, um, it was just, you know, it particularly bland. And they actually could, so they were looking for something that they, you know, there's a, to make them feel something or to make them think something and they, they weren't finding it. And as a result, they would just grab to any, piece of it that they could, you know, that was sort of comprehensible and talk about it in this way that, you know, maybe sounded a little bit pretentious, but really they were actually just, they were looking for magic and, I, and maybe not finding it.
1: You know, and it's really interesting. I, so, um, I had on my podcast, this artist named, uh, um, Taylor White recently, and we were talking about this role of object and one thing that was really interesting, too, is kind of this idea of when you see something, what is your reaction that's coming up for you with stuff? Like, I love looking at artwork as this idea of, A, like, stop, like, uh, there was, I think it was Eno, who, you know, the, the guy who kind of started trance music or whatever, he, he said, you know, stop looking at art as an object and start looking at it as a, as a trigger for an experience, which that keeps resonating with me. But then it's also like, what is your reaction to it? So, we, you know, like think about the banana with the duct tape, you know, from Art Basel last year, right? And everybody's like, right, it's a fucking banana with duct tape, right? How is that like, where is the skill in that? Or whatever that might be that they're objecting to why it sold for $150,000 in three editions, right? But now here's the other question. Why does it make you upset that it sold for $150,000 for three editions? Right, like, what is that about you? Like, what? And that's the interesting thing is you can look at your reaction to something that maybe you don't understand or identify with, and say, why don't I think that's art, or why don't I like? What is it about that that bothers me? And I think it's a really interesting way to like look at the lens of the world through.
2: So, how do it's you? It's like psycho
0: it? psychoanalyst at that point, you know.
2: How do you feel about the banana? Doug, specifically specifically you in Denver right now in a gallery surrounded by art that is actually very beautiful and meaningful. How do you feel about the banana with the duct tape? I,
1: first of all, I think that artist is brilliant. Um, I think that uh, at some point or another too, because I'm familiar with that. Uh, I have a, a, a collector that I work with that also has other work from that artist that I think is just fabulous, right? Um, the thing for me is at some point or another, people stop collecting artwork and they start collecting artists, they start collecting experiences. You know, that's why tourist galleries are so good, because you have this piece of artwork on your wall and your friends come over. And they go, oh, I love this piece. And you go, let me tell you about my fucking trip to Paris. (laughs) Or let me tell you about, like, my trip to this place, right? And it becomes this conversation moment about what that is, right? So the person who bought the banana that was duct taped to the wall, right, um, bought a conversation piece. They also, like, if you want to talk about it from so (laughs) If you're like, because really, what is one painting's value over another painting's value, except for if it brings that person joy and brings them, you know, a conversation or a thing to talk about in their lives, right? Like, how many? Like, for me, it's also really important when we're talking about conceptual artwork, right, versus something that's very literal. To talk about what is that, um, where does that exist within the conversation of art? And having something like a banana duct taped to a wall automatically puts you in that position of questioning what you think is art. And for me, that's where it qualifies itself absolutely as art, because now you're having this conversation within that realm of what art is. So I think the person who bought it also, you know, uh, very much, Um, And I don't think they like advertised who they were, but you know, they would have been in 150 newspapers worldwide the next day. And that's a story to tell. And if you're a billionaire buying art and buying stories, or not a billionaire, but just somebody who's buying art and buying stories, that's one hell of a fucking story to buy.
2: um, I I mean, or it might be a story that sounds really, really good when you're drunk in a bar and maybe like, but maybe the magic is gone by the next morning. Uh, I don't know, but I, I am really interested in what you said about buying stories and kind of making stories as artists, because I think that's what everyone is trying to do. Like like everyone is trying to just you know capture whatever the bit of their existence goes into their story, but for um do you feel about do you feel the same way about your gallery? You're a storyteller, right? You're a visual storyteller.
1: I do, and you know, and for me, that's the uh, that's kind of the art piece behind the curation of it, is you know how do you tell these stories in a way that really um, forwards the dialogue of the artists? You know, I think there's. Um, Um, And I, I really want to create that context in which people can, like, lose themselves for a minute. You know, I think, what was it? I read that at the Met, the average person spends, like, seven seconds with a painting. And I remember one time when I first started this gallery, I really wanted to put like fake sod or real sod on the floor of this one show for a Daisy Patton exhibition and wanted to like make people take off their shoes before they came in, like put a little bench down where they had to remove their shoes so they had to walk like barefoot through this sod to see this exhibition. And for me, it was like they were, it was almost like an act of contrition where they were like, okay, I'm going to be present. I'm taking off my shoes and I'm committing to like looking at art. And so that's where, again, I see, you know, the, you know that kind of very white, bland walled, white cube style of a gallery. I also see the importance of that to be able to allow people to maybe unfocus from the rest of their environment just to be able to be in front of that work and allow that to unfold. I don't know if that's always how that, ends up really happening. But uh, there is an art to that, creating that conversation for people to have. And with the gallery, I love creating immersive environments, um, you know, where it is about the spectacle and about installation work, where it hopefully transports people for a little bit um, and so that they can get inside themselves while they're looking at the work.
2: Um, So what you said about being kind of truly present with the art or truly present kind of in, you know, like in whatever moment you're living. And I feel like right now, you know, we could be, we have that choice, right? Um, But on the other hand, I feel like people are looking at things through their screens just so, so much right now. Do you ever catch people in in your gallery just, you know, looking at their phone instead of looking at
1: the art? Oh, absolutely. You know, and and that's kind of the fun part about, Uh, Not fun, but it's an interesting side effect of what's happened from the pandemic is so we've only been open by by appointment. And so when we've had openings, you know, we have five people come in per like 20 minute time slot. And outside of that, people have to create an appointment with us to come see the exhibition. And what I've noticed is people are so much more present you know, just by making that appointment.
2: Um, and, because they have to make an effort, right? Like right. you can't just wander in anymore.
1: Right. They're they're saying, okay, great. I'm like coming to see art today, right? And they come in and they're incredibly grateful for that opportunity to come see something in person. And another part of this too is when we've had the openings, the, the few openings that we've had throughout the summer um, when the artists were present, because several of our artists are out of state or out of country, and weren't able to attend the openings and we had virtual versions of them on like iPads or something. Um, It gave everybody who walked in the door the ability to talk with the artist and to talk with myself, which that doesn't happen at an opening. And then we've also pivoted with creating small kind of tailored events for our collectors um, where maybe we have a five or 10 person special opening just for them And that's been really interesting, too, thinking about the dynamics in which we work with our collectors. Because, A, they probably wanted an experience where it feels like we opened the gallery up just for them anyway. And they don't come to openings because they don't want 100 fucking drunk artists showing them their artwork on their cell phones and saying, look what I made today. (laughs) You guys are both laughing at that. Have you have you have you guys both been that artist or do you just notice that? but
2: um, so, you, know, you know what? I think I've wanted to be that that artist, but I, I've always been too socially anxious to get, like, you know, to, to show anyone my, my work on a phone in a gallery opening. The, I think I was like you, you know, I think aspirationally I'm that drunk artist of the opening.
0: So by, I'm by the, the way, drunk artist, but not the one showing things. <laughs> And so, just
1: to anybody who's listening, please don't do that to the gallerist either. Like that's my biggest pet peeve is like artists like showing me like wanting to pull me aside to show me like a body of work on their phone when I'm at an opening for one of my artists, because like again, like if your goal is that you want me to represent your work, would you want me paying more attention to some artist showing me their work on their cell phone at your opening <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. What, what's a good way to get their artwork in front of of you or a gallery owner? Like, is it emailing? Is it just sort
2: of? I feel like Doug probably doesn't want like three thousand artists writing him the second this is released, being like, "Well, no, that's podcast, what the you know." You said that's this, what the you know.
0: question's
1: for. It, it's yeah, to, to share. You know, like so. You know, I. So first of all, like, uh, as a disclosure on our page, we say we're not accepting, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, we're not accepting, you know, new artists type of thing, right? Um, And that, you know, don't expect a reply, basically. Um, The reason is, is, you know, I, but you know what, I do look at the emails of submissions. Um, And I do check it out briefly. And, you know, for me, it's like, do I have a gut reaction to this? And am I going to, like, investigate it more? Um, So, you know, what really works well is, you know, half the time I find artists that I'm really interested in from my own exploration and from, you know, following what other artists are that I work with, what they're excited about. Have I brought on artists that have sent me an email? Yes. Have I brought on artists that have sent me like some package in the mail with a portfolio and a book and like a card and some really well-designed stuff? Yeah, I have. Um, so I, I don't know that there's one um, really correct way of doing it, but one thing I would say is like the, another little pet peeve of mine as a, as a gallerist is I receive several in you know artist submissions daily and so many of them like are maybe not self-aware of where their artwork is within the relationship of other artwork and so like I have so many people who are like you know and I don't know if it's just a templated email that they send to like 5,000 galleries but it's like did you even look at the artwork that I'm showing like this is not even like within the same genre or realm or understanding of the work that I'm exhibiting, you know? So I think there is something of like really kind of identifying a gallery that does feel like a, a real honest fit. And a lot of times it's okay. So where is that gallery? Like do I fit with the kind of exhibition profiles of the artists that are already there too?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm gra- I'm really glad you said that because I think I know like students of mine and things, they just take rejection as a blanket. They're not valuable, but it's like your work looks nothing like what that gallery shows. Why would they take you on? I think they re- you really need to do your homework and find something that feels like would fit before you go knocking on the door or whatever, you know?
2: Um, also, rejection is good for people. That's my pet peeve. People think rejection's a bad thing. Rejection is good. It means you probably didn't, you know, you probably wouldn't fit there anyway. And if you can't handle rejections then like, how are you going to survive doing anything?
1: No. Well, and I think it's, it's a lot more personal when it's, um, because art is such a hard thing to quantify and it is such a personal thing to begin with. You know, you're putting your, everything you have into this work and, uh, you know, it, it's hard to hear that it doesn't resonate
0: with somebody else. I had a teacher once who said, if you're not getting rejected, it was like three times a week, be it grants, galleries, get someone to write about you, whatever. You're not working hard enough. I thought that was really interesting. <laughs> that sounds right. That sounds right. <laughs> Like I I have some art, like I
1: I had on my podcast today, Hunt Slonem, right, who Hunt is in the permanent collection of 250 museums worldwide. And he talked about the 20 rejection letters he got for a grant before he finally received it when he was, you know, just first starting off. Um, So, you know, there's, uh, that's like, what, 16, I think he said 16 rejection letters from one specific grant. That's 16 years of his life that he, like, (laughs) you know, remembers getting rejected in that one particular place, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I I totally agree. Like, uh, you, I think your teacher nailed it.
2: Uh, so what are some of the I guess you've mentioned a few of your kind of pet peeves as a gallerist most of who we have on this show are probably artists Uh, so whenever a gallery director shows up we get really excited but what are some of the other things that bother you kind of in in your kind of gallery director career
1: oh my goodness Um, uh, I think you know there's little things that are like technical that I, I like I, I remember back in the, my uh, days as the director at uh, in Evergreen um, we hosted an OPA national show and I could uh, I could have written a book on how not to package your paintings like and like how to prepare stuff for exhibition know like that that you know so for me like you know you know sometimes it's little things like putting hanging hardware on a painting or something like is it's just nice like I don't want to have to like have my staff do all of this stuff and like track you down for information on all your artwork and take photos and that kind of stuff for you like I mean certainly we do a lot of that but there is like certain things where um, it just makes our life so much easier um, to present the work if you have um, you know like Quality images of your work.
2: If you are, you know, showing up drunk at an art opening, at least have good images of your of your work. that so you're trying to show the director's <laughs> face, there
1: you, there you go. No. Yeah. <laughs> I just like envisioning this multitude of drunk artists showing me really good images. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Thanks for encouraging that.
2: By the way, do you know why they're doing that? It does seem like a terrible practice, and you're not the only, you know, person that runs a gallery with that particular pet peeve. It's it's because when you're in grad school, uh, or at least when I was in grad school, maybe People get told different things that now, but what I was told at professional development classes is that the way to have an art career after grad school is to show up at every single opening and uh, basically network until you met the most important person in the room and do not leave the gallery until you met either the director or the most famous artist. And that seemed so unbelievably kind of soul-sucking uh, that I think it scared me off going to gallery openings for like a year after I finished grad school. Uh, um, the, but, but, but yeah, they're, they're doing it because I think their teachers are telling them to do it.
1: Well, and I don't disagree with that method. Like I really do. Like I tell young artists all the time, like go out there, go to, I tell them the same thing, go to every opening you can, meet the people that you can, right? I don't tell them pitch your fucking artwork at somebody else's show. <laughs> you know, like that's that's a different thing for me because that's actually when it's coming to like, here we are to celebrate something and that we all have in common, but let like, let me divert the attention from what we're here to celebrate towards myself, right? Versus contributing to that conversation, right? So I absolutely would say, yeah, go out and see a lot of work, talk with a lot of artists, meet a lot of people, look for mentors, do all of these things. Absolutely. I would agree with that a hundred percent.
0: And then it also forms where you feel like your work fits into that conversation. Because I think I, I feel like one is building a community. Like you, this is something you're clearly interested in. If you're in grad school for this, you want to know people who are doing it. You want to know people all aspects, and you want to make friends. So just go out and do it. It's it's the other way is skeevy to say like. You can climb some ladder if you meet this, this, and this. It's like just build a little community for yourself. If your art gets on the walls at some point, that's great. If not, you got a nice community, right?
2: Um, I, I held on to this for a while just to, you know, remind myself of how what, what kind of person I didn't want to be. I had this photocopy cheat that's, you know, that I got handed back back in grad school at one of these classes, and it be, like like it had rules for attending a gallery opening. Oh, um, cool! But uh, but they, but they were kind of like also terrible and maybe feel bad. <laughs> the, um, but but I, I think one of them actually was network, but don't share your art. Like at someone else's openings. that's really bad taste. But one of the other, some of the other rules were don't ever talk to anyone for over five minutes. Don't get stuck in conversations with people who are not useful and always look for, you know, always scan the room for the persons that would kind of advance you in your career. And I was like, oh, this is awful. Just awful. I hate
0: the phrase people who are not used to it. No,
2: no, right? And then as like, again, yeah, no wonder art openings feel terrible. It's because people are actually like this. Yeah.
0: Well,
1: and, and then that like the first thing I think is like, I, I don't agree with all of that. You know the the five minute rule or anything else like those.
2: But have you heard this before? Like this is a common thing. No. Well,
1: I don't know. I think like not that uh, professors are handing this out to their students. You know, I, you know, we, I do a lot of talks with like professional development classes around here at the different universities. We'll have classes come in, or I'll go to their. Uh, you know their classes as well, but uh so i haven't heard quite that like here 's your cheat sheet on what to do at a gallery but i've i've heard other versions of like some kind of etiquette um, you know, and uh like don't get drunk at them <laughs> you know like like don't get drunk at your own opening like i've heard that one like preached by a lot of like you know professional development courses. Um, Which I can absolutely say I broke that rule a lot. um, (laughs) (laughs) I've broken that one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, So, you know, who knows? The other thing is there's no like roadmap to this. Like I know people who've gone to the same undergrad, graduate, like residency programs and their careers are in totally different places.
2: I feel like you are like a really good storyteller and I could probably listen to you talk for a very long time. Can you think of one that you're comfortable sharing just off off the top of your head?
1: Oh my God, a a crazy art story. Um, (laughs) right, Like, uh, you know, there was that time that I ended up uh, having a, wonderful conversation with Paris Hilton at Art Basel at a party on the, in a penthouse after opening day. That was kind of a weird one. Um, I've, uh, you know, like a lot of them involve like kind of celebrity clients of mine that I don't know that I should necessarily like uh, talk about. Involved, um, right? Yeah. Um, God, there's been, there's been a lot of stuff. There's like this, that's one of the beautiful things about this space in which we exist in the creative world is that, um, is that not only do the patrons and our the artists have all of these fabulous exos- eccentricities, but, um, you know, we kind of encourage them. And that's such a lovely thing.
0: What is it? Because Art Basil so a lot of the people listening to our show are... More traditional oil painters, you know, not really would show up at Art Basel.
2: You mean the kind that would never get taken to Art Basel? That's that's never that what get asked me? to
0: go. Exactly. You know? Oh. Uh, what, what is the scene like? You go there yearly, I imagine. Is it like what what is that like for you? Is it profitable? Is it a good experience? Is it wild? I I love
1: it. Um, No, there's, well, and I hate it at the same time, too. There's a a really weird dichotomy about it. But if, uh, first of all, let me just kind of explain what Art Basel is. So it's basically an an art fair that's run by art galleries um, instead of individual artists. So Basel was first done in Switzerland in Basel um by a group of galleries that uh, were wanting to present works in a in kind of a different format. So Art Basel Miami, the main fair is in the convention there. It's called Art Basel. And then there's probably god 15 other fairs going on simultaneously that week which they everybody kind of refers to the whole thing as Basel or or they refer to it as Art Miami Week. So as a gallery what we do is we Rent a booth, and uh, several of the, a couple of the different fairs are like on the beach at South Beach in a tent where there's, you know, maybe seventy to hundred and twenty galleries from around the world presenting, you know, the their most interesting artists and artwork that they they have in their roster and in their stable at that time. Um, the main fair, Art Basel, it's like a little museum in every booth. So they're presenting Picasso and Chacall and Warhols and Hockney and you know the biggest artwork that's available on the market in the world at that given moment. So it's, it, uh, the first year I went, there's also across the street is Design Miami, which is really wonderful for me. It's like the really engaging furniture design and uh, kind of uh, which I think is just fascinating since I look at artwork all day long to see you know, these presentations of the most like, you know, uh, cutting edge furniture design is really uh, fun for me. But um, so the work varies from fair to fair. There's, you know, some of the bigger ones are untitled, which is the one that I was in this year, and in my mind is my second favorite, or this, you know, uh, behind Basil, which again, for these, a booth. Entry level booth at Art Basel might cost you 60 grand to participate. Um, you get into a bigger booth, and that might be a half a million dollars to participate once you're one of these big galleries like Gagosian or Pace or Hauser and Worth. Um, so, uh, um, and then there's the fair like Untitled, which um, I really love because it's also a lot of emerging really contemporary artwork that might not quite be at that level of Picasso, um, you know, but is still super engaging work by artists who are having museum shows. Um, You know, so it's of that certain level. And then uh, Pulse was a fair that I did for a number of years, but has now been, Uh, purchased by Volta, but there's, you know, Art Miami, there's Nada, there's, uh, you know, there's maybe like, again, like, I don't know, 15 fairs going on at that time. So this is like this major uh, kind of convergence of the art world For this week-long celebration in Miami. So of course there's the standard debauchery that you would expect when you have a bunch of uh, people traveling from all over the world to come you know uh, see art and celebrate and you know there's a lot of celebrity sightings from art world celebrities and you know the uh, Leonardo DiCaprio sighting is always something that happens there too and you know every year I've seen Chuck Close driving around so that's That's kind of fun. And, uh, you know, he's come to my booth on a number of occasions. Uh, So there's that kind of spectacle of what's going on there. But I remember the first year I went, oh, my God, it was like visual overload. Because each fair has a 100 booths. And each booth might be presenting, you know, one to seven artists. And this is, again, in my mind, some of the most important artwork in the world that's being exhibited here. And it's just Booth after booth after booth, you know, times 20.
2: I um, never really wanted to go up until this year when everything got closed down because I figured I'd be overwhelmed and it'd be too much art and too many people. And now I would love to be somewhere with, you know, that much art to look at in person, not not on Instagram and that many people. Like I would love to be in a crowd right now without, you know, being afraid of getting COVID.
1: It's incredibly eye-opening to experience artwork in that, um, you know, that kind of mass. And, uh, like, the, that's what's so appealing about the art fair structure is that, you know, where else can you ever see that much artwork in one week in that vicinity to each other?
0: Why? Because, like like I said, a lot of our listeners are a little more academically kind of traditional-based figurative artists. Um. And, and something like Art Miami or is a little more, has a, a more contemporary aesthetic. Why do you think that figurative art like that, I don't know if I need to say names. Just Why, sort of did, why does no one
2: like us, Marshall? Is that why?
0: What yeah. Wh- what do you think is keeping it out of fairs and more contemporary galleries, more galleries that are concerned with conceptual things? Because a lot of that is concerned with it as well. What do you think the the roadblock is?
1: Wow, and we have what
0: and we got
2: this uh, for me
1: to address this one? Um, that's a really big question, and I think it's really um, – uh, that's – okay. So I did this exhibition four years ago that I felt like was trying to address that with my own personal artwork where I ended up working with, what, four OPA masters and 12 very traditional representational artists, and I painted over their original paintings. Um, is the one that was filmed for a PBS special. And uh, as it developed, I had them, you know, kind of paint over my paintings because one thing, I think what you're getting at the heart of is there are, seems to be two very different camps in the art world. One is the traditional yes. traditional world. The other is the contemporary and conceptual world. And on both sides of this argument, I think every each other has decided that the other practice isn't really art, you know, traditional people look at conceptual artwork and they say, okay, my kid could paint that. Um, it's not really art. Um, I don't understand it. And I know that like, I've had people talk about my own artwork that way, you know, and, uh, and I do a lot of conceptual stuff where, um, you know, it's not necessarily easy to digest with what I do. Um, but see what you're talking about then, um, this idea of skill equaling, you know, value of artwork. That's where we start to get into this idea of okay, so what is a found object then? Does that mean it's not about art?
2: We could have had such a good debate uh, had we asked this earlier. The-
1: I know, like because you know, and then on the other side of it too, you know, the contemporary conceptual world wants to address representational art as like okay, how is this furthering the dialogue of art, or did, more decoration than it is art now there's all these conversations that are latent within your question there marshall and i we're we're gonna have to do another podcast again
2: you were actually the first person that touched on the fact that there is a whole larger art world out there Um, and you know, me, me and Marshall kind of like, you know, we exist in this bubble and so do a lot of the guests that we interview. and you know what that bubble is because you've been involved with enough of it, but you also know the world outside of that bubble. And like, like, I think what we were talking about was that the two sides of the art world that don't actually talk to each other at all. Uh, You might be the crossover.
1: Well, it's kind of funny that you use the word crossover because that was the name of an exhibition that I did that was filmed for a PBS special. It was called Crossover, and it was uh, tackling this uh, kind of content uh, exclusively. So what I did was I had noticed that there was this incredible divide between, you know, let's call them the traditional representational art world and the contemporary conceptual art world. Um, At the time, I was... um, the director of a gallery in Evergreen, Colorado called Evergreen Fine Art. And I represented people like Kwong Ho and Ron Hicks and, uh, you know, kind of uh, maybe a little bit towards the Western leaning side of the representational world. And uh, I also um, represented the estate of Thomas Hart Benton. So I did like blue chip secondary market stuff as well. Um, we were the only people that worked with the estate, uh, you know, west of the Mississippi. Um, and within that world, at the same time, I was an artist that was represented by a contemporary gallery in Denver that was uh, f- f- fair renowned. We had people like uh, some of your guests might know, like Valerio Diaspina, and uh, yep, and also uh, Valerio Diaspino, and then uh, like Zariah Foreman and some other artists that kind of crossed over between, but were considered more in the kind of contemporary side of the world. Mm-hmm. And I was very involved. It was almost like I had two different hats. I would go in as the director of this gallery, working within kind of the OPA world, the working within the traditional side. And then, uh, you know, within my own practice, and I also own a building here in Denver where I have studios for about 16 artists. And within that realm, it was a whole different world. Um, and what I realized was the collectors, the artists, the galleries um, all of that area, there wasn't any crossover between those two worlds. So you wouldn't see those people at other events. You know, uh, there was like a certain category of galleries that everybody went to within one realm. And, you know, they didn't go to that other realm of those galleries, you know, outside of what was kind of in their, um, their lane. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one thing I started figuring out was the fundamental divide was really quite interesting for <laughs> the representational and traditional world looked at contemporary and conceptual world. And there was this kind of idea that, yes, there wasn't skill, right? So there was, my kid could do that type of mentality, um, you right. know, some of the artwork that was being produced. Or, you know, you're kind of pulling the wool over the eyes of the viewer with that, with this concept that it's you know, that it's not really valid, it's not really art. Um, And uh, on the opposite side too, the kind of MFA holding conceptual contemporary art crowd looked at very traditional representational art and they said, okay, another landscape. How is this furthering the vernacular of art? How is this furthering that conversation? We've been doing this for 2,000 years, it's the same art right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's not um, art, it's decoration. You know, um, those are the type of things. So on both sides of this conversation, um, the traditional representational world gives no credence to the contemporary conceptual world and vice versa. And to me, that was so interesting that people had bought in so much to this idea of what artwork was valid that they thought they would just outright dismiss somebody else's expression of creativity. Um, And these are the people who you would think would have the bigger buy-in towards, you know, acknowledging other people's expressions of creativity Mm -hmm. as valid as practitioners of, of that. Um, And it, became really evident to me that this was so much in line with the ideas so my show it took me about a year and a half um, or so to develop the idea and bring it to fruition and i opened up the exhibition um, in november the weekend right before donald trump got elected um, and in 2016, so that whole idea for that show was how do I speak about religion and politics and those type of issues that are present in the same kind of divisive thinking and that's in the art world. Um, so how do I speak towards that type of thinking without directly referencing them? Um, so for my concept for an exhibition, um, I... Wanted. I ended up reaching out to four OPA masters and other people within the, you know, contemporary or I mean the traditional representational world, and I asked if I could paint over their original paintings mm. um, ah. as part of this conversation. And as PBS got involved right at the beginning of it, and as they were developing the idea with me. I, uh, you know, I decided that I didn't want this to be a one-way conversation. I didn't want it to be me recontextualizing other people's artwork or, um, or kind of changing the aesthetic of it. It was, I wanted it to be more of a conversation. You know, there's, there's been kind of those one-way conversations in the past. I think of Ai Weiwei painting Coca-Cola on the, you know, historic, you know, uh, vases. Or, or I look at uh, the race to Koenig's. Uh, that Robert Rauschenberg did, where he erased original uh, de Kooning drawings. Yes. And so that kind of idea of, um, you know, having a statement over the top of somebody else's work has already existed in some way. So as the idea kind of developed a little larger, I asked these artists to take one of my existing works and do the same, uh, to paint over the top of it. Um, It wasn't a collaboration uh, more than... Uh, you know, I, I told artists that I might take their painting and cut it into strips and weave a basket out of it, and that they might not have that they wouldn't have any kind of input in that. As a matter of fact, I specifically didn't want us to have any uh, communication about how we were physically approaching each other's work.
0: Hmm. Do, do you? What were some of the OPA painters that you you painted over?
1: Kwang uh, Ho. Okay.
0: Um, He'd be very familiar to our listeners.
1: Yeah, Ed Kusera was also an OPA master, uh, Ron okay. Hicks. Sure. Uh, David Santianas. Oh, he's great. Yeah, David's fabulous. Um, well, the, all of these artists were. Uh, it was a really, it was a fun experiment. Um, there was also uh, Edward Aldridge, um, Ned Aldridge. He's a wildlife painter. Um, okay. There was uh, uh, Jeff Legg.
0: Oh, yeah. I know him
1: um there was uh, Terry Lombardi who was a pastel artist uh, Kevin Weckbaugh um, and I kept them all regional um,
0: where 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 can we see this documentary
1: uh, it's on PBS on uh, called like Rocky Mountain PBS or was it Colorado P- Rocky Mountain PBS okay or Colorado PBS I forget which one it was the local PBS station it ended up uh, uh, Getting nominated for a regional uh, Emmy, which it did not win
0: well what do you think I mean through this documentary and, and things, what do you think the um, the crux of that divide is uh, because i i'm I'm more on that traditional side you know that's how I train and that's sort of how I make my living but i've always had a love for conceptual art and all, all kinds of art, and I've always felt like a bit of an outlier that way because I see that divide so heavily. And it's it's from my circles that I came up with don't really take anything that isn't just pure high level representation very seriously. You know, and I've always found that to be so strange.
2: I you mean, know, except for de Kooning, everyone says they love de Kooning, right? Like- all,
0: only at the New York Academy, though. <laughs>
2: Like. Oh, yeah. like, like all of these figurative people who like could completely dismiss non-figurative art is there, is there, is there token guys to Kooning that, but, um, but, but it was sort of to what Doug was saying earlier, where like Marshall with me, you went to an opening uh, of one of the people we knew that we would know every single person there. Right. Yes. So we, we would know the whole room. And if we went to an opening of someone kind of like on the conceptual uh, part, part of the spectrum, we probably wouldn't know a single person there. Even, though, like, even if we liked their work, you know, like we, we'd go to see a show that we, we'd like and we still wouldn't know a single person there because um, basically because things are so polarized. Uh, so. so
1: of that group of artists that I was just telling you, right? These are people whose work exists in museums, right? Um, Don Stenson, who I adore Don, was the only artist that I worked with there who had ever even shown up to the Museum of Contemporary Art in Denver.
2: Out of all of those artists, professional That's artists crazy. living in
1: Denver, only one of them had ever even shown up
0: to the Museum of Contemporary Art in Denver. That's crazy. But I think I think that shows a certain bias in the in the artist, but at the the art world at large there's a bias as well. I mean, like we were talking about Art Basel a little earlier, it's a very rare, figurative representational type of work that will make it in, in that larger conversation. I can't think of anybody really.
1: Oh, I can a dozen figurative artists right off the bat that are in there right now. Kehinde Wiley comes up right now. Amy Sherald comes up right now. Um, Daisy Batten right there was just who's uh, around my shoulder was just li- listed. And uh, for this year's, you know, uh, Miami art week is one of the top 100 to pay attention to for that. Um, there's also, uh, but see, I think even like, I, think, Castile. I could keep naming them.
0: Yeah, I guess so. But like, even like Hinde Wiley, he would be like, well, he's a factory. He doesn't paint. It's all assistance, Like, there's always reasons why someone makes it to a larger stage. That, that sure, is... and
1: so did Rembrandt have assistants, and Michelangelo <laughs> had assistants. Like every single artist in the history of the world didn't make everything that they put on I them.
2: Know. if we if we were to get into it, um, yeah, my Michelangelo's assistants and you know, um, and Rembrandt's assistants were not the same as, let's say, Jeff Koons' assistants, who are actually making everything, right? <laughs> Well, so
1: this is the perfect point to, like, kind of diverge, I think, from this conversation to what is art, right? And why is art considered art and what is valuable about art, right? And this is where I think people look at it and, like, is the idea or or the actual, like, craftsmanship the thing that's important about art?
2: Um, well, mm. is it, but okay. So I think the um, is it just the idea, right? So Jeff, so Jeff Kuhn's argument is that it's only the idea that matters. So therefore like, you know, he comes up with the idea, he's the artist and then he has whatever it takes to kind of bring that idea into, into being right. Like, I don't That's think, any, I, I don't think same any, as
1: an architect, right? Like they design these beautiful buildings. They don't put a fucking hole in the wall. Um, but, they don't add a single nail or screw or actually build it, and it's still their building and their vision and their idea.
2: Um, okay, but does it? You know, like like traditionally, the artist's hand did matter, right? Um, like like does it? So I don't think any of the figurative people are 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 out there saying like ideas don't matter at all. You know, they're saying skill matters, but like, you know, like, like no no one, no one is dismissing ideas altogether. Um, I mean, I guess this is quite kind of what we came back to talk about, right? We came back to disagree on some stuff. <laughs> right. Well,
1: yeah. and this is what's so exciting to me about this is like, first of all, so like I, I, on my podcast recently, I had this artist, his name was Taylor White. And Taylor, we were talking about this idea of object again in art and why kind of we're still even having this conversation about like, is it okay if it's an object that somebody else made or a found object or, you know, the Armut and Duchampian type of conversation that happened a hundred years ago? You know, why are we still like set up on like that Brillo box of Warhol? He bought it at a grocery store, right? What's like, how is that? Or the banana that was duct taped to the wall at Art Basel, right? And what you are buying there? as you bought a certificate
0: that said you could duct tape a banana to a wall right but i th- i think i think uh, warhol is one of my favorite artists of all time i think what he did was so smart and it was just sort of like drenched in irony and all these very uh delicate concepts that i don't think most figurative artists get, and I wonder if that's what sort of keeps them out. Like they're just so sincere, and uh, everything's overwrought. Like a lot of anguished expressions on nude figures, and it's just like, what? Where is the place for that stuff?
2: But not all figure, not all skilled artists like that, though, right? There's that's
0: right, but I would say that's what most people think about when they think about it. Oh my gosh. So
1: like, I, I heard your bias there when you called them skilled artists, um, you know, like, because you know, like, there's other MFA people have, don't have the skill. So like, you know, and that's where I found a lot of the kind of distinguishing marks too is, and, and this is, and I can be totally wrong about this. I'm going to be the first one to admit this, but one thing that I noticed that was kind of a, a division line was about where people got their education and what kind of schools they went to and what kind of programs they went to. And this is something where I'm starting to like dive in a little bit in my own head because a lot of the people within the contemporary realm have MFAs, you know, and a lot of people and they might not know how to fucking render a glass of water at all. You know, they can't draw something, uh, you know, and then there's a lot of people within the traditional representational world who maybe had degrees in other realms and found art in a different way or were working in advertising or other things. And again, very generalized ideas and stuff that I came across a lot of and got most of their education in a very formalized, hands-on process, not about art history, not about concept, not about, um, you know, kind of the conceptual ideas. So within the traditional university programs, it's all about concept and stuff. And sure, you have... Uh, technique and some classes that are driven that way, but not as much, and not not really. It's not really about technique.
2: I mean, you get like one foundations class where you may, where maybe a model comes in, but really, so I've been to both, right? Like I I got an MFA from a place that at that time was pretty, it was the New York Academy of Art, which at the time was pretty skill-based. And I got my undergrad from somewhere that was, you know, like kind of like your classic college program, where they think that painting is dead and skill is, you know, overrated. um, I I actually remember when I was, when I was applying to go to the academy, one of my Favorite professor said that he, he's willing to write me a recommendation anywhere except there. And I um and I still remember what he said. He said, Dina, you're gonna wind up a second rate artist at a third rate gallery. And I actually remember exactly what I saw when he told me that. I was like, I'm gonna be in a gallery. That's cool. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so well, but he's not wrong in a He's not wrong.
1: Like well- that's I think you can cap yourself, right? I think you're capping yourself in this conversation. And I've had, I've had ideas, I've had conversations with artists about this. You know, I think I alluded that where I was the director of for the better part of a decade was kind of Western slanting within the art world. And there was this whole movement not that long ago, and it still kind of exists, where people are like looking at like the pre to West and other things, and they're like these artists they only you know make five, eight paintings a year and they sell them all for $100,000 a pop and you know, they're at where they're at. Um, and uh, you know, the LaFells and Christiansens and those type of people in the world, right? Who are at the very top of that realm. And, you know, and the very top of that realm is kind of the Scott Christiansens of the you know, $100,000 price point. You look at the contemporary world and you have 22 year old kids who are making that kind of money.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, that, but that—that that goes to the the original question. Like, what do you attribute that to? Like, what? Why? Why is it capped? Why doesn't it move into other venues? Why isn't there more overlap? Like, what? What do you attribute that
2: to? I don't know, Marshall. Do you think it might be capped? And maybe, so maybe it get, like, I, I can't remember if maybe a previous guest in this podcast said this, but it might actually be capped because there's only so much of that, it, you know, like the art world would slant towards some things that can be produced reasonably easily, right? Like like, like, like where if someone takes, you know, a year to do a painting, Um, that's not exactly something that would be kind of, you know, like, like you can, you can sell that painting for X amount of money or whatever, but I feel like it's less, like people are less willing to kind of bet money on it because it's not as much of a commodity.
1: Uh, Well, I I don't know if I believe in that. I mean, I understand where you can have logic of that.
2: I'm just throwing it out there. Like,
1: well, and that's the whole thing is there's so many misconceptions about the art world that I think that we've all bought in because it's so mysterious and we don't understand how it really goes. And we need to make some kind of uh, tropes up that we can believe in and have our faith in that that's why it happens this way, right? right. But uh, I I really believe, so this is an interesting thing because I was looking at scarcity and this idea around you know, um, volume for an artist. And and so I did a little research the other day and, uh, you know, our, our friend Picasso, guess how many pieces he made in his lifetime that are attributed to him?
0: Oh my God. It's just an an outrageous amount. <laughs> over over 500,000. Over 500,000, yeah.
1: Right? So, it you know, and a Picasso is considered like a rare thing. I think everybody's like, oh, they hear about Picasso and they're like oh, that's got to be valuable and rare and whatever. There's over 500,000 objects that are attributed to Picasso out there.
2: But I mean, arguably, Picasso is wildly prolific, but I don't think every Picasso painting is kind of equivalent to every other Picasso painting. Like there's some that are really good and then there's some where he's just like, I'm Picasso and I can do whatever I want. And I made this in 25 minutes. And that's just kind of that.
1: <laughs> well, you know, some of like, I, I know within even the representational world, you know, you look at people's plein air studies, right? You look at some of these works,